Hear the word of our God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God, of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for sending the light of the world into the world that we may behold your glory, that we may know truth, that we may have life. And so we ask that you would send him here this morning by the Spirit so that we may behold your glory in the Scriptures this morning, so that we can know the truth more fully, believe it more firmly, and walk more completely in the light to the praise of your glorious grace and Christ Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Clark Griswold. Clark had a dream. Clark wanted to, uh, from his perspective anyway, uh, grant great blessing to his family. He wanted them to go to a place that he imagined as almost magical, as a place where they would find great joy and great delight. And so Clark in preparation for this, purchased a brand new panel, side panel station wagon. And his family embarked on a cross-country journey to go to Wally World. Yes, this is what we do sometimes. We, as parents, can often get uh, desirous of bringing great blessing to our families, and sometimes we don't always understand exactly what great blessing is. It's not Wally World, as you might imagine. But he had a vision of a place where his family would find incredible joy, and that is the vision that this psalm presents to us, a place where there is great joy, where there is great delight, where people ought to want 
to be. Our big idea this morning is that those who love God love to worship and serve Him. And we'll get there in just a few moments. But first, I want to talk about this psalm. There is some confusion confusion with regard to the setting of the psalm. Because this person seems to be at distance from God's temple, some have come to the conclusion that this is a psalm of exile. Okay. Others hearing uh, in the particularly in the second stanza this idea of pilgrimage have thought that it is actually a psalm of pilgrimage, a song of ascent, and we find a lot of those, particularly when you get to the one twenties. But I think James Montgomery Boyce is probably on a better path when he when he looks at who wrote this. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And the main task in the scriptures of the sons of Korah were that, was that of gatekeepers at the temple. They most likely were at the western gate of the temple. And so this psalm really seems to reflect their experience as they rejoice in their position, but also observe what goes on around them at the temple. We see that there are three stanzas that are created by that word Selah, and that each of these three stanzas has a blessing in it. And so we're essentially going to follow the structure of this psalm as we look at it, focusing on the three blessings that are found in each stanza. But before we even get to that, I want us to remember there's something about this word blessing. It means essentially fortunate or happy. And what it's pointing us to is to someone who has received the benefits of the covenant. And it would be easy for us to read this because the covenant of works is writ deep in our hearts. It would be easy for us to read this as do this, get that. But how I really want us to understand this is in light of the covenant of grace by which we see because we have received grace, we are blessed, we are fortunate and happy and do these things in response to God's grace to us. So let's not hear this as somehow a call to do, 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 but rather, what has God done? Let's be thankful for that. But before we even press on, there's one more thing I want us to understand. We're going to move uh, through from the original context into sort of our context. And I'm going, to, I'm going to lay this out explicitly at the beginning because I'm not going to lay it out explicitly through the course of the psalm. And when we look at this, this takes place, of course, sons of Korah, uh, they're at the temple, and what the temple is, in many ways, is a type and shadow of the presence of God amongst His people. It was the place which did not contain Him, but at which He had chosen for them to come and to worship Him in His presence. And so it was a special place. It was one that was set apart from the rest of creation to to be a manifestation of His presence for His people. But again, it is type and it is shadow. 
We see the substance of that arises, arrives rather, in Christ Jesus Himself. He is the living temple, the final temple. And of course, that is part of why the temple being made obsolete was destroyed in A.D. 70. That's only part of the reason. There was also judgment upon people. But we see that Christ Himself is the cornerstone, and as we heard from in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are like living stones being built into this living temple. And so, uh, as we think about this, it's not just Christ that we consider, but we're considering the body of Christ, the people of Christ, as a living temple. Particularly when they are gathered for the purpose of public worship. And so while he is speaking, when the sons of Korah, the psalmist, is speaking about the physical temple, we are to understand this in terms of the body of Christ at worship. Okay? Psalm itself. Hopefully that all made sense to you. Blessed are those who joyfully serve in the body of Christ. As I mentioned, it is believed that the sons of Korah served at the western gate of the temple, and I really believe that this is sort of them observing things and making note of these things, and each stanza is essentially a sort of different category of what they notice. They start off with this exclamation, How lovely is your dwelling place! That could be translated, how beloved. See, we're not sure if that word is, is referring to the state of it, lovely, beautiful, or whether it's about their response to it, we cherish it. And of course, we tend to cherish lovely places. But what really makes this cherished and what really makes this lovely depending on which direction you want to go with that, is the fact that it is God's dwelling place. That His glory is evident there. His presence is there. And so as he, as the psalmist is expressing his love for this place, it cannot be disconnected from his love for whose place it is. God Himself. As they kind of express this joy about this place, it makes me think that they love their work. And they love the one they work for. Not many of us often say that. We often struggle with our work and our workplace, and our bosses can be uh, difficult. I don't have that problem. I like what I do. I like where I do it. Okay, but some of you are not in that place at all. But these guys are in that place. I imagine being a gatekeeper is not glamorous. And it is not exciting. When I'm a senior citizen, when I'm done pastoring a church, maybe I'll end up as a Walmart greeter. And if I do, I'm a gatekeeper. And I'm probably really bored. Okay, one of my neighbors in Florida did that in his retirement years. Okay, but they loved it. 
But it wasn't because of the excitement of the job. I believe it was really about the one that they served in the midst of it all. That was really what was exciting. And part of how they describe him repeatedly, four times in this psalm, is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies. He is not contained by this temple, but He is the one who beautifies this temple. There's an aesthetic sort of appeal to this. And we see the deep response by the gatekeepers. Here they are, they're at the gate, but they're saying they long in their inmost being, they're even fainting for the courts. They don't want to be at the doors, they want to be in the courts with everybody else. And so even while they love what they do, they want to be deeper They want to be, in a sense, in greater fellowship with God. They want to be inside. I can't help but think of the scene when the Griswolds finally arrive at the parking lot. And they're filled with such joy. Well, at least Clark is. (laughs) To him, this is everything. It's everything he has imagined before the reality strikes him anyway. But as they are there, they don't just observe, I think, people, uh, but they observe birds. And what's interesting is that the birds are where they aren't. The birds are where they want to be. You see, they're at the gate, and they can see into the court, and they can see the birds. Just like the courts of most of the homes in that place in that time, the courts were didn't have ceilings. They're open area spaces. They're walled in, so you, you can't just stroll into there unless you go through the gate. But, of course, these birds fly over those walls, and we see that they make their homes. He mentions two birds in particular. One uh, is uh, the sparrow, and one is the, I want to make sure I don't, Mess up the order here. So the swallow is the second one. And we see from other places in Scripture when Jesus talks about um, swallows, uh, sparrows, sparrows. (laughs) Aren't two of them sold for a penny? In other words, he talks about the relative worthlessness of this bird. It's not a valuable bird, it's not a peacock. It's not a hunting raptor. It's a plain, ordinary sparrow. And this thing that we perceive as generally worthless, however, has found a home by the altar of God. It's not like um, many businesses, business places we go to where they put those spikes on the surfaces where birds may nest. We've got some rocks hasn't stopped them from always nesting on our building. These birds are welcome. There are no spikes to keep them off. They're, they're welcome. The swallow is often viewed as a bird that is restless. It's one of those birds that's always on the move. And yet we see that that bird is able to find a nesting place by the altar of God. 
that bird too, this restless bird, finds peace and rest by the Lord of hosts. And I cannot help but think of Augustine's famous quote, You have made ourselves for you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so, as the psalmist looks at these birds, he's not criticizing these birds. He wants to be like the birds. He is restless. He's fainting. And he wants to be at peace and at rest in the courts of God. This powerful person is revealed as his king and his God. And this finds, of course, fulfillment in Jesus, who is our king and our God. Jesus, who is the Lord of hosts, who leads the armies. And we see this as Jesus, the conqueror in Revelation 19, as he rides upon the white horse as his name is faithful and true, and he has King of kings and Lord of lords tattooed to his legs. A conquering king. And so while we worship Jesus, who in his um, first advent was meek, this does not mean he's weak. But Jesus is victorious. Jesus will come and bring judgment, and therefore his people can find rest. Now we get to the blessing part. And this stanza, it's at the end, it's the very last line. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. It is grace that draws us near. It is grace that makes us worshipers. And we should be grateful and thankful that we are able by the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to worship. And so as I think of the gatekeepers in in this context, I see that grace is what has made them grateful servants, joyful servants, joyful worshipers. And then I think about us. Are we grateful worshipers? Clearly, if you sit up here, it's a lot louder in this church than in others I've been in. A lot of people kind of sing like that. You guys sing joyfully. But there's a challenge sometimes to serve joyfully. Yesterday was Saturday. And sometimes that means in the Cavalero household, Chores. It's a holdover from the DeGroat household, not the first Cavalero household. And so I am not one who is always joyfully participating in the joy, the, sorry, the service that needs to take place around the house. I would rather read the novel that I was reading yesterday, or trying to read, before getting so rudely interrupted so repeatedly. (laughs) My children as well did not always respond well to the pleas of their mother to serve. And oftentimes we can be that way at church as well. We forget the grace we have received, and so it becomes duty instead of delight. But this guy, he served delightfully. Where God dwells, in other words, the church, 
is a beautiful and desirable place for those who love Him. Secondly, blessed are those who come despite difficult journeys. The second stanza begins unlike the first one. This time it begins with the blessing. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. And the focus on this stanza is going to be on strength. The weakness of God's people, but the strength that He comes and gives those weak people. This is important precisely because, um, well, we see that, first off, all roads in their heart lead to Zion. This is part of that blessing as well. You know, God has put these roads in their hearts. They have not put them there themselves. And so these are fully devoted people. They are people who are wanting to go on pilgrimage, but pilgrimage itself is not easy. You're going from a distance through unpleasant places to arrive at your destination. Okay, so you may have been 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 miles away, which for us is an hour, but for them is days. Because remember, they don't have cars. All right. And we see that some of the places they travel to, he mentions one, the Valley of Baca, the Valley of Weeping. And how do you think a place gets a name like that? It's not a pleasant place if it is the Valley of Weeping. It is a place that is probably marked by hardship and disappointment, conflict. Okay? But what we see is that the weeping was not the whole story. Okay? We see perseverance, but we also see something even greater that starts to happen. We see that there are now springs. There are now pools of water. And what's interesting as we look at this is, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The pilgrims. But we also see the early rain also covers it with pools. And so there's a sense in which they, as they are going on through the valley, they are transforming the valley. They're bringing springs to it. They're digging up springs. They're subduing the earth, much like Adam was supposed to do to expand the garden. So they're not just kind of, you know, buckling down and saying, we've got to get through this really hard place, this very difficult place, and we're going to get there, but they're saying, we're going to change this place as we go. That's an odd mindset, isn't it? This is not one pilgrimage. This is not one journey. This is a picture of something greater. They're able to do this in a sense because they understand that God is their shepherd and that even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the shadow of tears or the valley of tears they fear no evil because God is with them and so they go and i recognize that oftentimes it is not easy for us to come to this place sometimes there are great existential crises going on in our lives and the last place we think we want to be is worship <laughs> 
There are times when it is very difficult to round up the kids. I don't know this personally, except for on my vacations, of course. Uh, but to round up the kids and get them here. There's fighting. There's arguing. There's passive-aggressive uh, not getting dressed. I don't know. I know when I was a kid, I did not want to be at worship. I did not want to go to Mass. I was almost dragged. I was very reluctant in going. But grace changes everything. Because now, my wife is not kicking me out of bed. Steve, you have to go talk to those people. <laughs> I want to be here. And before I was a pastor, I wanted to be there. That was one of the things that really changed instantaneously in my life was when I became a Christian, I wanted to read the Bible and I wanted to go to church. It just happened because it was an act of grace. Regeneration took, had taken place. And so these people come, though it is difficult. We see that they go from strength to strength, which reminds me a little of that, how we go from glory to glory. Well, they're going from strength to strength. And there's a sense in which the sons of Korah, being the gatekeepers, are watching them arrive, and they know that they have gone through great distance and perhaps great difficulty, and they've been camping for a while, and here they, they show up, and they look like people ready to worship. They look rejuvenated. They look revitalized. They don't look beat down like they've spent the last 20 hours in an airport. Okay? This is the observation of the sons of Korah. And I can't help but think of poor Clark and all of the things that he suffered to bring his family as they had a great aunt die and her dog die, as the car got trashed, as they got ripped off, as so many things befell them, of course, obviously in comic fashion, but nonetheless... And then for him to arrive and be filled with joy and wonder at an amusement park. We're coming to something so much better than that. So we find in places like Nehemiah 8, you know, don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We see in Isaiah 35, uh, which is going to be quoted in, in Hebrews 12, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so these are people who are going from weakness to strength to strength. They are learning, as Paul learned, that God... God's strength is made perfect in our personal weakness. And so these are not beat-down people, but revitalized people as they come to appear before God. They're ready to sing with joy, too. Verse 8 might be, and I think his response to seeing this, and he cry out, Hear my prayer. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. He's about to petition God. But as he petitions God, it's interesting because first off, he repeats that phrase, Lord God of hosts. He's, he's praying to one that he knows has power, one who has authority, one who can protect him. 
And we see in the midst of the stanza, this fits in with that idea that God loves to strengthen and sustain His weak people. It brings glory to Him to do that. And so offer your weakness to Him. Don't pretend you have to be strong. In fact, your strength often gets in the way of bringing God glory. Because if we're strong, we don't think we need Him. But when we're weak, we realize just how much we do. But He's not just the Lord God of hosts, but He cries out to the God of Jacob. Now that's just sort of a, wait a minute, where did that come from? How does that fit in here kind of statement? And I think this is getting back to the idea of the covenant, and in particular, God's blessing on a man who wouldn't give up. I think we have to go back to when Jacob was wrestling with the angel of the Lord and Jacob had been wounded and all he could do was cling and he kept crying out, bless me, bless me. So in a sense, this is the cry of the desperate man who has no strength in himself, who wants the strength of God and who wants the covenant blessings of God. And so when you're weak, when you're beat down, when you're walking with tears in your eyes, you are invited to pray to one who strengthens you, to one who blesses the weak and the powerless. And so as pilgrims, we often travel a difficult road, but it is one that we beautify in His strength. Thirdly, blessed are those who look to God for refuge. See, it's interesting. He, he says, hear my prayer, and then we stop the stanza. And he doesn't give his prayer. And so the very next verse, verse 9, I think, is his prayer. And he's looking at the, the anointed one, the king. He's recognizing that the king is their shield or protector, and therefore he wants blessing, God's blessing, to come upon the king. Look on the face of your anointed, he says. It's, it's, it's basically a variation of the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face be turned towards you. Okay? And so he's drawing upon that, that priestly blessing and wanting God's face to be turned toward the anointed, the king. Not turned away in anger, but toward, toward him for blessing. Because as the king goes, so goes the nation. If the king displeases God, judgment comes upon the nation. And so that's how he's viewing this. He wants God's blessing on the king so that God's blessing will come on them all. And just like that, our future is also tied up with our king, Jesus. Because all of God's blessing is poured out upon His Son, and if we are united with Him, we get those same blessings. Our destiny is tied up with our King. 
And so the psalmist shifts his attention away from the king back to the courts. And he's saying, it's, it's, it's better to spend only a day there than a thousand elsewhere. I can think of some pretty nice places to spend a thousand days. There's lots of national parks I'd like to go to. And baseball parks. <laughs> lots of waterfalls to see. He'd rather spend one day in the courts of his God than looking at all of the thousands of beautiful places upon the face of the earth. How's that for love, huh? He'd rather be a doorkeeper. Hey, wait a minute, he is. He's a doorkeeper. He'd rather be that than dwelling in tents that seek sin's fleeting pleasures. That's why we read from Numbers 14. These were people who had been called out of Egypt, out of servitude, and here they are in the wilderness going to a promised land. It takes a while to get there because of the stubbornness of their hearts, not because God doesn't know where to go, but there's all of their sin is rising to the surface, and what do they say? Bring us back to Egypt. We want to, we want to be oppressed again. Well, that, of course, they didn't say that. Okay. They thought of, oh, but there's onions there. There's leeks there. There's fish there. There's food there. And all we have is manna here. And sometimes as Christians, we often want to go back to the safety of servitude. Remember Lot's wife. What did she do? She looked back. She was not into the unknown future with God. She was all into the known past or history in Sodom. If if you saw some of my pictures from my vacation, a friend and I were outside of a church called Sodom Community Church. There's a little community called Sodom near where my in-laws live. Don't know why. And there's this one road that's the, the road the church is on is called Sodom Cross or Crossing. And then there's another road that kind of loops off this one road and, and connects to that to that point there, the crossroads. And it's called Back to Sodom Road. I have gotten neither the foolishness nor the courage to go down that road. (laughs) Okay. But Lot's wife wanted to go back. We struggle sometimes with wanting to go back. This person didn't struggle with wanting to go back. He wanted a godly life. Not one with a little bit of sin to jazz it up, so he thinks. But that is, the, that is the thing about the pleasures of sin. They are fleeting. They do not last. They evaporate like dew in the morning. So then, we see that sin essentially 
loses its grip on us only when our hearts are set on a much deeper, greater joy than that of knowing God. And so he goes back to God in this psalm. He says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. Wait a minute, you just said the anointed was your shield. This is the greater shield. The king was only the means by which God protected his people. The real protector of God, uh, sorry, of the people was God himself. But this idea of sun and shield is an odd one, isn't it? What I think is, is going on here is it's a reflection, I believe, on the wilderness journeys. Because the pillar of cloud glowed. And it glowed brighter than the sun. And so I think that this is a, 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 an allusion to that pillar that led God's people through the wilderness. The pillar that protected them and the pillar that guided them the pillar that met with them and gave them guidance and wisdom. And so Jesus, who is Yahweh, who is the greater Son of David, is the true and perfect Son and shield for His people. Jesus is the, the source of life, the source of vitality, the source of truth. We need Him just like we need the Son. If you don't think you need the sun, move to Alaska in the winter. You will quickly be shown how much you need the sun as you slip into depression. If you know anything about Alaska, it's that it leads the country in depression and suicide because of the winters, because of the darkness. We need the light, to prosper. And so we see Jesus is the one who bestows grace, who bestows honor, who bestows glory upon these things, and, and all good things upon His people, upon all those who walk uprightly because of grace. And so we see here a foreshadowing of what we see in Romans 8. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And that's why I love that this one quote by Newton, which I meant to write down so I wouldn't mess it up. But essentially, all that we have, we need. All that we don't have, we don't need because it has all been graciously given to us by our God and Father who gives us all things that we need. And so we don't need to fret. And so final blessing here is given on all those who trust in the Lord of hosts because He obviously has the power to bless them. And so by faith, by trust, we are united to Christ and therefore we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's really where the psalm comes to an end. One quick illustration to understand that, I guess. This year for um, the air show at Davis-Montham, well, we knew a colonel. And this colonel invited us to the commander's tent. 
You see, I'm not important. My family's not important. But we got to go into an important place because of someone else. And so we got front row seat to the air show. We got free lunch, free drinks, all of these great things for the air show. You know, we got to see the raptor just hover right in front of us. You know, the, uh, the fighters were parked right in front. It was a great place to see the air show. But it's not because of me. It's because we know someone. And so we receive these blessings not because of ourselves, but because we're united to someone whose name is Jesus, who has all these things. And we are the beneficiaries of all these things because of grace, not our personal merit. Well, Clark Womai uh, traveled far and at great cost to arrive at Wally World, only to find it was closed. Those who come to Christ by faith will not find that way closed to them. Instead, they find Him an open door through whom we enter into God's presence and find great blessing. There is joy to be found in serving and worshiping God. There is joy in being strengthened when we are weak. There is joy in trusting one who is far greater than us and whose armies surround us so that we can walk in security and serenity. You see, the gatekeeper's delight in the temple points us to Christ and the church. But do we share that delight? If we do, it's an evidence of grace. If we don't, then there's something wrong within our hearts. They're disordered. And it's not that we need to fix them, but we need Jesus to fix them so that we can experience these blessings that the psalmist lays out. Let's pray. Father, we confess that even as we read this, there's a part of us, if uh, we belong to you, that goes, yes, yes, yes. And there's a part of us that also struggles. We recognize that in addition to regeneration, there's also the remaining corruption of our hearts. And we don't always... I want to be where you are. But that's usually because we have been dwelling in places we shouldn't dwell. Father, I ask that you would uh, grant us hearts that indeed worship joyfully. Not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. Hearts that are stirred up by your Holy Spirit making melody out of thanksgiving. That you would be granting us hearts that serve you willingly. Hearts that draw on the promise from 1 Corinthians 15 that our labor is not in vain if it's for you. Father, that you would grant us strength For many of us right now are weak. But I know that all of us will eventually be weak. We are weak from difficult circumstances, from afflictions, 
of mind and body, of circumstances that are beyond our control. And so strengthen your people. Be at work so that we are trusting in Christ as our sun and shield. That we're trusting in Him as our God of hosts. So that we have no fear. So that our worry is consumed by Your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.